This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. How are you today? You survived the great flood, huh? Yeah, anybody waterlogged where you live? Yeah, I got places on our property. You don't dare walk or we might not see you for a while, so... Uh, Welcome to church for those of you who are brand new. My name is Ron and I'm part of the teaching team of New Life. And for the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to be teaching us about the backstory of the Bible. And so if this is your first time here, you picked a great Sunday to come because we're starting a brand new teaching series. It's called The Bible for Grownups and I've already had one person ask me on the way in, what if I don't want to grow up? I said, well, then you'll be like me, all right? So uh, we we are going to take a look at the Bible in one of the most interesting perspectives, certainly the most interesting perspective that I've ever looked at the Bible. And uh, I just want to tell you up front that I learned so many things doing the research for this particular teaching. And... I'm very excited to lay it out for us this morning. Uh, So for those of you who are brand new, uh, you should have gotten a program on the way in. If you would get that program right now, there's there's a blank sheet of paper in there that says the Bible for grownups on the top of it. It's provided for you to take notes. I want to tell you that as you exit the auditorium, there's a couple of tables right there. Uh, The one on that side has, uh, I made 50 copies of the teaching slides this morning. Um, so if you want to pick up a copy, because uh, frankly, I'm going to be teaching us things that probably few, maybe none of us in the audience actually know these things on the way in. And so you may want to look that over on, uh, on the way out. Also, if you would take, if all of you would take this card, We're going to refer to it again later this morning, and it's a very important card. So if you'll take out the Start Here card, put your name and your email address on it, um, and then I'll show you how to use that later on in our service. Every Sunday, every Sunday at New Life is a learning and growing experience. And that's, there you go. That was learning and growing for me right there, all right? Um, So today we're going to talk about the Bible for grown-ups. But I just want to say, especially for those of you who are brand new, every Sunday at our church is a learning experience for virtually every person in our audience. It's designed that way on purpose. We will never get up here and just rehearse things that pretty much everybody knows. So... As you sit through this service this morning and you learn, just recognize that everybody here is learning the same things that you are learning, and they didn't know this stuff ahead of time. And the second thing that I want you to know is that every Sunday at New Life is actually a life-changing Sunday for many people here. And before all of us gathered in here this morning, uh, there was a circle of us that gathered for a time of prayer, and we prayed that this would be a life-changing time for many people who are here and hopefully in some way for every single person who is here. So with that in mind, let's jump into this and let's talk about 
this book, okay? Um, I remember my first Bible. This one has my name on it. I preached from it for many years. My first Bible was given to me on Sunday morning after I made the decision to become a Christian on Saturday night. And my parents and a group of people around me took me to an abandoned quarry in just outside of Portland, Maine. And they took me to the pond that, that collected in the bottom of that quarry. And the water was like 50 degrees. And my dad gave me a flashlight and a Bible and asked me to read a passage of scripture. I was 12. I was just getting ready to go into junior high. And I sat there in that water with the Bible shaking and the, and the flashlight shaking. And I couldn't actually read it to my father's great disappointment. So he then quoted the passage he wanted me to read. He baptized me. And the next morning, he gave me a Bible of my own. I will never forget that day. I opened up that Bible, and in the flyleaf, there was a message he had written to me. And it said, Dear Ron, this book will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this book. Hmm. Now that was his perspective of the Bible. That was its main job. And I knew from hearing him preach hundreds and hundreds of times that his basic narrative about the Bible was, this was a book to keep you from sin. And you know, it will. I didn't say that's its main purpose, but it actually will. Others of us grew up, and you probably have, <clears throat> if you've been around church any time, heard this uh, acrostic and that is, you know, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? That's a different perspective on the Bible. And that is that the Bible is basically a book about instructions, not necessarily keeping you from sin, but actually how to live. I've heard other people say, you know what? The amazing thing about this book is it's not very big. But this is all of God's rules for all of mankind for all of time. Now, those are three different perspectives on the Bible. And there is some truth in each of those. So what's your perspective? For some of us who had the, this is all of God's rules for all of mankind, for all of time. That's what we heard all the time growing up as children. And when we got in college, we said, I think I've had all the rules I need. And we somehow walked away from our faith because we thought we knew the rules. And frankly, we didn't agree with them all. Yeah. And so some of us walked away from faith. For some of us, the perspectives I just gave represent a current struggle we have with our faith. And it leaves us in this place of questioning, what should I believe or what shouldn't I believe or how much of what I have been told is true? Now, the interesting thing about our perspective is, by the way, you may have gotten your perspective from a TV sitcom because they actually do make references to it, not usually in the best light, but they do. 
or your perspective about the Bible may have come from a college professor. But the thing that I've noticed over 48 years of pastoring is that very few people have a perspective about this book because they've read it cover to cover. And very few people have a perspective about this book because of the study that they have done or the research that they have done into its backstory. For most of us, our perspective about the Bible comes from things that we have heard from other people. That's not all bad. It's not all good either. Okay? So for the next four weeks, we're going to dig into what's behind this book. And is there anything about it? Is there a solid enough foundation underneath it that there's a reason that you should consider what it says? And, and if you come to New Life all the time, you'll know we're not going to lay on any guilt. I'm not going to be shaking my finger at anybody. But I want to present some things that I think are worthy of our consideration because the truth is our perspective about the Bible has actually been determined by our source of information. I think we all need to know that that's where we start. And secondly, for many of us, this is the reason that we currently struggle with faith, with our faith, or have left it. And some of you are here because you're you're, you're trying to figure out, should I return to faith? And if I return to faith, should I return to the exact faith that I was given? Or was I given a faith that's close, but it's not the real thing, or it's not as clear as it could be? So we're going to try to address some of those things. Now, right up front, I want to take you to a passage in the Bible. It was written by a guy who went through the exact same process that I just explained to you. He was a guy that in his early adult life, he actually hated Jesus. He had no intention of believing in him. He had no intention of being a Jesus follower. In fact, he voluntarily killed Jesus' followers. Until one day, he came face to face with Jesus. And he heard the actual message of Jesus. And it transformed his life. And he wrote to a a group of people in the city of Rome. His name was Paul. He said, faith comes from hearing the message. And, and, And maybe what I should have done is capitalize the word the. Because it's not a message. There is a particular message that actually gives birth to faith. And this is an unshakable faith that will stand through the test of time. And he goes on to explain. And the message is heard through the word about whom? About Christ, about Jesus. And so our goal is to grow our faith by taking a look at the backstory of the Bible and by in particular focusing on the message about Christ, about Jesus. The same guy wrote to a young pastor that he was training, and he said to Timothy, Timothy, diligently present yourself to God as one approved. By the way, I want you to see he was to present himself to God not in order to be approved, but as one who was already approved. 
He goes on to say, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, that was an interesting thing when I first read it, because if it's possible to correctly handle the word of the truth, what else is possible? To incorrectly handle it, correct? Yeah, that's too many corrects, I know, all right? But it is possible that we could take what was designed to be a wonderful blessing and we can actually turn it into something that becomes harmful and hurtful for people. And I would tell you as a church, I live with that reality every single day. And my prayer is that God would give me the perspective of this book that would enable me to handle it correctly so that it does in our lives the things that it, it is supposed to do. Now, let's start with an understanding. Knowing how we got the Bible is vitally important to correctly understanding it. In other words, the backstory of the Bible is as important as the story of the Bible. Because any story without a backstory leaves you wide open to misunderstanding the story. Let me illustrate this. When I was probably five or six, I was in the back seat of our family car. My brother was asleep. My parents were in the front seat. And I was coloring in a coloring book. And my father looked in the rearview mirror and he noticed that I would pull out a color and then I would color and then I would leave it in the seat and pull out a color and color and leave it in the seat. And he was envisioning, it was in the, it was in the summertime, there was no air conditioning in the car, and he was envisioning what that back seat was gonna look like in a couple of hours. So he said to me, hey Ron, I think it's great that you're coloring, but put the colors, the crayons back in, in the box and only take one out at a time. That way you don't lose any, and that way they don't make a mess on the seat. And so I, I started picking up my crayons and putting them in the box. But if you've ever put crayons in a box and you're a five-year-old, every once in a while, a crayon gets sideways down on the bottom. You ever had that experience? That's what happened. So I couldn't get my finger down there to get it out. So I dumped all the crayons out. And about that time, my dad looked in the rear view mirror. Not a happy camper. Yeah. To his credit, well... He gave me a wonderful little exhortation. <laughs> what did I just say to you? And I turn around and you are dumping the crayons out of the box. Now, I lived in my dad's home for 20 years, and that's one of only two times I can ever remember him correcting me when I didn't deserve it. Outstanding dad. He pulls over at the next town. We go into a shop. And I got a candy bar. We were dirt, dirt poor. I got a candy bar maybe five times a year. But I got one that day. Because he wanted to make that up to me. But the point is this. If you don't know the backstory, there's all sorts of opportunities then for you to misinterpret the actual story. So for today... We're going to dig into the backstory of the Bible, and, and we're going to see how this is vitally important. The story of how we got the Bible doesn't actually begin at the beginning of the Bible. And in fact, we're going to see that the story of the Bible actually can be traced 
to a single event. And if that event hadn't happened, there literally would be no Bible. You wouldn't own a Bible. There wouldn't be a Bible that contained the Old Testament and the New Testament. There wouldn't be a Bible that's being translated into virtually every language across the face of the earth today. There literally would not be a Bible, period, apart from this one event. And so really, it's this event that launched the Bible. And we're going we're gonna to talk about some history that will show that for us. We're going to go to the book, to the manuscript of Luke. And for those of you not familiar with the Bible, the Bible has two sections to it. 39 manuscripts are in the first section, and they're commonly called the Old Testament or the Old Agreement. And testament is just an old-fashioned word for an agreement between two parties. In, in the Bible's case, it's an agreement between, between God and a group of people. So there's the first part of the Bible called the Old Testament, and the latter part of the Bible, which is a collection of 27 manuscripts called the New Testament, and the New Testament is much shorter than the Old Testament. So the 27 books of the New Testament were all written after Jesus was born, lived, and died. And that's sort of the dividing line. And so one of the authors of a manuscript that's preserved in the New Testament of the Bible. His name is Luke. And Luke was a doctor. He was a medical doctor. He was a Greek medical doctor um, who happened to be, who happened to hear the story of Jesus and eventually become a Christian. And he became a very, very close personal friend of the guy that I just read from, a guy by the name of Paul, who became one of Jesus' 12 closest followers. So Luke is the author of a manuscript in the New Testament that actually bears his name, and that is the book of Luke. And at the beginning of his book, he begins to show us uh, sort of how the Bible came into existence. And so he begins by saying, many have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. I underlined the word many because Luke is writing to a personal friend of his by the name of Theophilus. And, and Luke is writing to him, and I want you to get this, a documentary. Have you ever watched a documentary? Yeah, of course you have. You may have read some documentaries. It's important for you to know that the first four manuscripts in the New Testament of the Bible are, we sometimes call them biographies, but they actually are not biographies. They are documentaries. Luke is writing a documentary, and I'll show you how I know it's a documentary in just a minute. But he says, hey, I'm not the only one that's doing this. Many are writing these documentaries. So let's start with, a, with what we, we would consider a logical conclusion. If there's a whole bunch of people who are all writing to document an event, would that have to be a pretty sizable event? Yeah, it would have to be huge. The guy that played the drums today, it's his birthday. Yeah, let's hear it for Foster. But I'm pretty sure no one is going home to write a documentary of that event today, right? Even though it's a big day in his life. Yeah. Because it has to be something mammoth and monumental with wide-ranging ramifications before anyone would actually document it. 
So Luke says, many people are doing this and they're, they're writing accounts of events. That also sounds like a documentary. He goes on to say, they have used eyewitness reports. You know what an investigative reporter is? Yeah, an investigative reporter tries to get every eyewitness that they can and interview them and take copious notes and record them. And then they're going to take the accounts of all the eyewitnesses and so forth. And they're going to put it together and they're going to compose their documentary based upon as much as possible eyewitness reports. So Luke says, they used all these eyewitness reports that are circulating among us from his earliest disciples. These are people who were around when Jesus was born. These were people who were around when Jesus was baptized. These were people who were around Jesus and knew him when he taught. They saw him give sight to the blind. They saw him do all these things. They were around and with Jesus his entire life. And Luke says, these are the eyewitnesses that people have interviewed in order to write their documentaries. And then he goes on by saying, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. This is Dr. Luke. And he said, I went back and I interviewed all these people and I carefully investigated everything all the way back to the beginning. He said, I also decided to write an accurate account for you Most Honorable Theophilus. Now, Most Honorable was an actual political greeting, like you would say, Your Majesty or Your Highness. Most Honorable Theophilus would indicate that he held some official office. Theophilus actually is a Greek word that means one who loves God. And he goes on, this is how you know it's a documentary. So you can be certain of the truth of everything that you have been taught. Wow. So that's how Luke begins. I'm writing a documentary so that I know you've heard the story of Jesus. Now I want you to know the backstory of everything you've heard. And you can see it's about events. So now an important observation is Luke didn't think he was writing a portion of the Bible at all. Who is Luke writing to? Theophilus, his friend. He's just writing a documentary to his friend so that so that his friend could know that what he has actually heard is actually true. Luke didn't think he was writing a portion of the Bible for the whole world. He was just documenting a carefully researched event for his friend. And by the way, all of the manuscripts that are in the New Testament of your Bible, and even the manuscripts that are in the Older Testament of your Bible, not one of those people thought they were writing a Bible for the whole world. They were simply documenting what had taken place. Now here's the backstory of the event. And this is the part that you and I need to know. I said up, I said up front that the entire history, the backstory of the Bible could be traced to a single event. And I hope to be able to illustrate that for all of us this morning. The backstory of the event is this. Shortly before Jesus was born, and no one knew Jesus was going to be born, angels started appearing to people in the nation of Israel. We have seven documented accounts of angels appearing to people in a tiny uh, period of time. And they all seem to have the same message. And the message was about a child that was to be born 
or that had just recently been born, who was going to grow up to be the Messiah that the Jews had long awaited and believed in. And they all pointed to this child. And sure enough, this child grew up and began to do superhuman things. He started giving sight to people who had been born blind. He started giving hearing to people who were deaf. He walked up to people who had atrophied arms and legs. And he touched them. And their atrophied arm became well and whole again and perfectly useful. And their leg that they walked with a crutch because it was atrophied. Their leg became whole and worked just like the other leg. And he walked up to people who had the curse of death. If you got the, if you got the diagnosis of leprosy, your life was done. And in its more advanced stages, fingers started falling off. Jesus walked up to people who were lepers. And he touched them. And the disease was not only instantaneously gone, but the the members they had lost were back again. He raised people from the dead. He walked on the water. He stood up in the middle of a storm and told the winds to die down and be calm. And they did. It was phenomenal. Can you imagine the newspaper reports? If Jesus appeared today, walked into Petaluma Valley Hospital, and went room after room after room and emptied the hospital, it would be killer crazy in the media across the country, and everyone except for the doctors and nurses there would be really happy. And they would be unemployed. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Wow. But it gets even crazier than that. As Jesus teaches, he claims not just to be a prophet given special powers by God. And he claims not just to be a great person who can do special things. He says, listen, I am God in human flesh. Now the whole world at that time, except for the Jewish nation, was polytheistic. We'll get into that in a minute. And Jesus doesn't claim to be a God. He claims to be the God. The one who made everything that you can see. The one who made, who made and knows every single human being. He said, I'm that God. And you know, based on all the things that they saw him doing, thousands and thousands and thousands of people bought in and said, who could argue with him? When you could walk up to a dead person and say, get up, and they do, you just might be God. I could get on board with that program. And so they wanted to make him king. But the tide of public opinion 
turned against Jesus by some things done by the Jewish leaders, and a crazy thing happened. Those same people saw him arrested. They saw him condemned. They saw him executed. And they saw him put in a grave. It was catastrophic. What were they to believe now? And friends, if the story ended there, there would be no Christians. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about a great guy who lived who lived for 33 years, did great things for three years, and died. We would have said, well, too bad for them. But it would mean nothing for us, really. He didn't heal any of us. He didn't raise any of our kids. Huh. There would be no story. There'd be no Christians. There would be no Jesus followers. And yes, there would actually be no Bible. Because, you know, I said that the older part of the Bible, those 39 manuscripts, until Jesus, those manuscripts, everyone in the world knew this. They were written for Jews. They were written by Jews. And they were for the Jews only. No one else, if you weren't a Jew, you didn't care about the manuscript of Isaiah. It wasn't for you. It was only for the Jews. And they had no intentions of sharing it with the rest of the world. We'll see that in a little bit. That's just how it was. There would be no Bible. There would be no 27 manuscripts in the New Testament. No, nobody's going to write a documentary of a guy who was executed in public view by the government and then placed in a grave. No one's going to start a giant movement after that person. If the story had ended there, there would be no Christians, there'd be no Jesus followers, there'd be no churches scattered across the face of the earth, and there literally would be no Bible. None. Wow. But then Jesus didn't stay dead. And that's where the whole story turns. No one would document the life of a guy who was a nice guy and just died and try to start a movement. You might document his life, but it wouldn't be for the purpose of faith. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And that, my friends, changed everything. Everything hinges on that. And and if you come back Easter, we're going to talk about that. All right? But that changed everything. Look, the story of Jesus turned everything upside down in the Roman world and in the Jewish religion and in the polytheistic religious world. And let's start from the, from the bottom up. Let's talk about the polytheistic world. Other than the Jewish nation, every single nation in the world was polytheistic. And by polytheistic, I mean they worshiped many gods. And a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the stars... They had a God of plants. They had a God of sex. They had a God of reproduction. They had, they had all these gods and demigods and so forth. The whole world was polytheistic. And yet, when the story of Jesus started getting scattered across the face of the earth, people were leaving their polytheistic ways and they started to follow. They started to jump into this Jesus movement and they became monotheistic. They, be, they, they became people who believed in one God. 
And that was the God who made the heavens and the earth. And they began to believe that Jesus was that God in human flesh. And guess what happened? People left their temples and they left their idols and they started worshiping Jesus. And you know what happened? It not only changed the polytheistic religious world, it changed their economy. People who made the little idols found themselves unemployed. Priests of those temples found themselves unemployed. Priestesses of those temples found themselves unemployed. Uh, People who maintained those, janitors who maintained those, found themselves unemployed. Masons who built them found themselves unemployed. It was changing everything about the polytheistic world, and that was tough. Let's go to the Jewish world. The Jews were the only monotheistic people uh, on the face of the earth at the time. And when Jesus came along and claimed to be their Messiah, it, it sort of flew in the face of two things they believed about their Messiah. The first is that he was going to come and he was going to be the savior and the redeemer of the entire Jewish nation and that he was going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem through which the Jews would dominate the world and the Jews believed that they were God's chosen people and everybody else was a pagan and God didn't care about them. Hmm. Jesus came along and he taught God cares about everybody. And he came along and said, I am your Messiah and your Redeemer, but I'm not just for you. I am actually for the whole world. Huh. So the polytheistic religious world hated Jesus' followers. The Jews hated Jesus' followers. What about the Roman Empire? Well, Caesar himself was a polytheist. He believed in many gods, including that he was a god. And part of Roman rule during those days was on certain selected days every year, every person in the Roman Empire was required to offer a sacrifice to Caesar as a god. Well, these Jesus followers not only didn't do that, they wouldn't do that because they understood to bow down and worship to anything or anybody except for the one true God was to be unfaithful to the one true God and therefore it was a sin. So they would not do it. Everybody else in the world, all the other polytheistic people, Caesar didn't care. You can have a whole stack of gods. Just make sure I'm in there. And a few times a year, offer me a sacrifice, and I'm cool with that. But to the Jesus followers, no, that wasn't going to happen. Now, the one thing that the Roman Empire and the polytheists had in common is they considered Christians atheists. Does that strike you as odd? Yeah. You know why they considered them atheists? Every time they went to one of their church buildings, there was no God in there. They looked around. They couldn't see a God. When you went to any temple anywhere else in the world, there was at least one God in that temple. There was an idol that everyone bowed down and worshipped. But when they came into these Christian houses of worship, there was literally, from what their vantage point, no God. Huh. And if you understand anything about polytheistic religion, you understand that the idea behind the religion is that everyone would keep the gods happy with them. 
And the idea was to appease the anger and the wrath of the gods. So you wanted to offer the right sacrifices and go on the right days and do all the things that that particular God required of you. Otherwise, if, if that, that God is the God of rain, that God will withhold the rain from you. And a crazy and interesting thing started to happen across the face of the earth, the, 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 the known civilized world at that time. Because people considered Christians atheists, Tertullian, our historian, writes this, If the Tiber, Tiber River floods a city, or if the Nile refuses to rise and water the crops, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, what? Christians to the lions. The only way we can make the gods happy is we have to rid the earth of these Jesus followers because they're offending the gods. Now, it got so bad that Diocletian, who was the emperor from 284 to 305 AD, he issued a decree that all churches were to be raised. And that doesn't mean lifted up, okay? You understand what that raised means? that anyone who claimed to be a Jesus follower would automatically lose their Roman citizenship, which meant they had no right to a fair trial. They could literally be slaughtered without repercussions, and they forfeited their right to protection from the Roman government. They literally had nothing. Thirdly, all the leaders were to be arrested and persecuted and preferably put to death. And look at this last one. Last of all, any manuscripts that the Christians considered precious or sacred were to be destroyed, burned. Now, at this point, in 300 years, there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of these manuscripts that were copies of the original manuscripts that you and I now consider part of the New Testament of the Bible. But at that time, there was no New Testament People just had whatever manuscript they could have. And very few people had them because virtually the whole world was illiterate. And yet in spite of that, there were thousands of those manuscripts around. Here is an amazing fact. Today, we still have 48 verified manuscripts of what we now call the New Testament we still have 48 portions of the New Testament that actually predate 303 A.D. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And um, we, there were thousands and thousands more that didn't survive the intervening 17 centuries of wars and floods and all those sorts of things that tend to destroy manuscripts. But even today, we have over 5,800 ancient copies of portions of the New Testament that are ancient in Greek, and we have a little over 25,000 copies of portions of the New Testament that are ancient. That means they're hundreds and hundreds of years old. It actually means they predate 800 A.D. So why? In the face of being killed... If you owned one of these manuscripts, why would people hang on to them and literally forfeit their life before they would forfeit their manuscript? Because here's what they knew. All of the manuscripts 
of what is now included in the New Testament were actually written by eyewitnesses, all of them except for two. One is the, the, the manuscript of Luke, and the other is the manuscript of Acts, both written by Dr. Luke, who was a personal friend of Paul. He personally knew Peter. He knew John. He knew James. He knew Jude. He knew all, personally knew all the other authors of all the other manuscripts that are now included in the New Testament of your Bible and mine, and he did his research. So these documents... These manuscripts were considered by people who follow Jesus the most precious thing on planet earth because they documented the history. They documented the backstory of Jesus' life. One of those eyewitnesses, and this is what we'll close with today, one of those eyewitnesses was one of Jesus' 12 closest followers that we commonly call the 12 apostles. His name is John. And John wrote his own documentary. And I want to show you one of the things he says at the very end of his documentary. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. So why did John write? He's about ready to tell us why he wrote. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this just before the end of his life. And he realized that he was one of the few remaining eyewitnesses who saw the entire life of Jesus. And John said, I want my witness. I want my testimony to long outlive me. So I'm going to write it down. I'm going to document it. And so he did. Just like Luke, just like many other people. But in that thing at the end, John reveals a truth for us that I... I, I just want to illustrate, and especially if you're struggling with your faith, you think, was Jesus really, did he really live? There are so many references to Jesus. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them in all sorts of ancient documents. It's irrefutable that he lived. But was Jesus who he really claimed to be? When Jesus raised himself from the dead, the Bible says that on various occasions, he actually sat with, touched, appeared to, talked with, and in some cases ate a meal with, allowed people to touch his hands, allowed people to touch him. More than 500 people. Just this last week, there's a famous murder case in our country. It, got, it gained a lot of notoriety. And just this last week, it was about a young girl, a college girl, who was killed, as it turns out, because her friend wanted to steal her inheritance. Really sad. Yeah. Listen, listen to this. That whole case turned 
because of one guy who was an eyewitness to a confession. One guy. One guy. I'm so glad. I want you to think for a minute how irrefutable would the case be if what was on trial was did Jesus really raise from the dead and 500 eyewitnesses showed up to testify. Would you consider that irrefutable? They ate with him. They talked with him. Friends, when you've seen a dead man walking and eating with you, I have a feeling your life will never be the same again. What do you think? Yeah. They started what I would call the I saw him too movement. And it went across the face of the earth. I saw him too. Now, John says this. He said, Jesus did a lot of other things. And they're not written in this book. Okay? This is the book. This is the the manuscript of John in my Bible. And John is saying to you and me, and if you're struggling with your faith, or or, or you're in the middle of deciding, should I be a Jesus follower? Here's what John would say to you. If this is all you had, this is all you would need to believe that Jesus was God in human flesh. And that he lived for you. And that he died to pay the penalty for your sin. And that he raised himself from the dead. And that he is coming someday to take you to be with him in heaven. If this is all you had. That's the backstory of the Bible. So as we close, I want to say a couple, three things. The first is this. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you say, you know what? If God came to earth, if God loved the world so much that he came to earth, and if he lived for us, and if he did all these things to demonstrate that he actually was God, that no one's ever been able to do before or after him, and if there are hundreds of eyewitnesses, and if there are thousands of manuscripts that all testify that this is actually true, And if he promises that if I will put my faith in him, he will set me right with God. He will transform my life here. And he will take me to be with him after I die. And it doesn't cost me anything. I would say, get in. That is the story of Jesus. And because the resurrection of Jesus is so powerful, it motivated people to document. And later on, those documents were all put together in a book. We're going to talk about the history of that in the coming weeks. And that book actually has become the Bible. But I want to say to you, even though this is true and reliable, your faith doesn't actually rest on this book your faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus it is the event that changed everything in the world the second thing I would say to you by the way if you make that choice on, uh, on the table on the way out 
uh, just before you get to the exit doors, you can find New Believers packets. Please go pick one up. Please go pick one up and read through it. It will get you a great start as you follow Jesus. Secondly, take in this whole series. It's, I mean, it's, is this a little mind-blowing to some of us? Yeah, okay. Take in the whole series. It's going to be so fun. Uh, we, we have two two parts coming up and then a big a big closer that I think you will find most informational. So take in the whole series, and then I'm going to talk to you about 40 days of prayer in a minute. Here. 40 days of prayer. Okay? That starts this Wednesday. For those of you who come from a liturgical church background, uh, that's the beginning of Lent. That's Ash Wednesday. And so um, we have so many things that we're going to be unveiling throughout the rest of this year that are all phenomenal. And I'm, I've, in many ways, I've never been more excited about where God is taking us as a church and what he's about ready to do in and through us. But you know, this is not stuff that we do for God. This is stuff that God does through us. Everybody on board with that? Okay. So it's not about us. It's about him. And so one of our community groups came up with this idea of why wouldn't we, at the beginning of all of this, launch it with 40 days of intentional prayer. So I'm super excited about that. If you have a Facebook account, go to New Life's Facebook page and like us, and then you'll be able to, it'll come straight into your feed. We have a countdown timer on there now. If you pull it up today, I think it says four days until we begin our 40 days of, of prayer. Every day, a fresh uh, post will come up on Facebook. It will have three different topics, suggested topics for us to pray about. And under each topic, there is a suggested prayer. So even if you don't know how to pray, you don't have to make it up from scratch. You can actually read that prayer to God. That makes sense to everybody? Yeah, it's going to be an amazing 40 days. If you, if you want to combine it with the whole concept of Lent and you want to give up something for the next 40 days, okay, I'm going to be doing that. I'm, t- I'm telling you today, I'm giving up sugar and carbohydrate-based snacks. Look at me and you'll know that's a sacrifice. <laughs> Got it? Yes, and every time I'm hungry for popcorn, which is one of my favorite foods in the whole world, it's going to be a call to prayer for me. Okay? So, hey, God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. I hope you enjoyed the morning. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.